Hello and welcome to The Almost Forgotten, the podcast that looks at the lives of great historical figures who have fallen through the cracks of our collective memories. Well, it's been a while, but here we are. For those of you that have subscribed for a while and don't follow me on Twitter, welcome back. It's been a long hiatus, but I've been here the whole time. I've been writing, and Season 9 is written, so now it's podcast time. For Season 9, we'll do it the same way we always do it. Episodes will come out every other week until we run out, and I've written 10, so that's when we'll run out. Before I get started, though, I just wanted to take a second to thank you all for listening. I'm normally just about getting down to business here. I sort of think it helps with the whole timelessness of the podcast to not really dwell on anything outside of each individual episode. But it's clearly already too late for that. Over the last few months especially, I've received emails and tweets from people asking if I was going to continue the podcast. That was always the plan, and I have been writing. But it was really great to hear from people who enjoy this and wanted more. So truly, thank you to everyone who has been listening. Okay, enough of that. This episode, we're going back to the ancient and often overlooked civilization of Urartu. Urartu was centered on what is today eastern Turkey and Armenia. At its height, it rivaled the great Assyrian Empire for power, and for a time even held sway over them. We'll focus on Argishti, who continued the work of his ancestors to consolidate his kingdom's power and expand it to its greatest extent. Maps and images can be found on the website, almostforgotten.squarespace.com. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at almostforgottenpodcast.gmail.com or find me on Twitter, at the Almost Forgot. This is Season 9, Episode 1, Argishti, and this is the Almost Forgotten. Argishti was born in the late 9th century BC, the son of Menua, the king of Urartu in eastern Anatolia. Argishti was not Menua's firstborn son and wasn't necessarily raised with kingship in mind. Menua was a great general, though, and Argishti may well have spent years on campaign with his father. At the time, Urartu's main rival, the Neo Assyrian Empire, was situated to its south. Assyria's power base, was what is today northern Iraq. Nineveh was not yet its capital, but that city, located in today's city of Mosul, was still an important location at the time. At the time, first Asser, then Kalu, now called Nimrud, were the capitals, although not at the same time. They were both a bit south of Nineveh, still on the Tigris River, in what is the northern part of Iraq. To Assyria's south lay Babylon, which was on the verge of disappearing as a kingdom. The Assyrians attacked in the late 800s and defeated an alliance led by the Babylonian king Marduk-Zakir-Sumi. He submitted to Assyria, which led to over a half a century of semi-independence as a nominally allied but subordinate state until the Assyrians started attacking again. To the west, the Levantine coast held various smaller Neo-Hittite kingdoms in the north, in addition to Phoenician city-states, which were sort of arm's-length tributary states to Assyria, by the middle of the 800s. They were the major maritime traders of the day, and had built a significant number of colonies in the wild, wild western Mediterranean, on both the European and African shores. 
Continuing south, the kingdom of Israel had been independent since the late 900s, while the house of David continued its unsteady rule in the more southerly kingdom of Judah. East of Mesopotamia, Elam was a relatively weakened state, while the Medes were just beginning to coalesce as a more organized group to the north. Further east, India was in the late Vedic period, with rule by the many Jahanapadas, a multitude of kingdoms, although a few might be called something closer to republics. These were still centuries away from coalescing into larger entities. The venerable Zhou dynasty ruled China, although a dramatic shift in power would begin around 771 BC, as rebellions led to what would be known as the Spring and Autumn periods. Continuing east across the Pacific, in Mesoamerica, the Olmecs had a major site at La Venta, built pyramids, and were in what is known as their middle formative period. The Chavan culture was the dominant civilization in Peru. Crossing the Atlantic, the western Mediterranean coast held those Phoenician colonies. The city of Carthage was just another one of them at this point and hadn't grown to dominate the region. Egypt was in what is sometimes called the Third Intermediate Period. The 22nd dynasty ruled from the north by the Nile Delta, and two pharaohs named Shoshank were in charge around this time. On the northern side of the sea, the Etruscan civilization was reaching its zenith in Italy. Greece was seeing a period of significant population growth, ushering the era known as Archaic Greece. In the early 8th century, the Greek city-states really began organizing around the polis. They interacted with each other through trade, through warfare, and through religious and community gatherings such as the Pan-Hellenic Games like the Olympics. And they began colonizing. Over to Asia Minor, cities like Miletus on the western coast were growing in power as well. But they were minor compared to the kingdom of Phrygia, which ruled much of central Anatolia, with their capital city of Gordion. Further east of them, we reach Arartu. More specifically, Arartu was centered on the region that is today eastern Turkey, northwestern Iran, western Azerbaijan, southern Georgia, and of course Armenia, which has relatively well-acknowledged claims as the eventual descendant of this ancient empire. The name Arartu comes from ancient Assyrian records, as does, quite frankly, much of our knowledge of Arartu. Although not all, as the last 200 years of archaeology have revealed significant findings that help us learn more about these people. But other than a brief mention of the kingdom, and a few more mentions of the regions and the mountains around it in the Bible, using the Greek translation of Ararat, most of our understanding does come from the Assyrian Chronicles. As early as the 1200s BC, King Shalmaneser of the Middle Assyrian Empire made mention of the lands of Uru-Atri, or Uratri, and noted that the people there, naming various kingdoms, rebelled. In this context, Urartu is a region rather than a people. The geographical location of this area, however, isn't certain. Shalmaneser also swept into what is really northern Syria today and pushed out the remainder of the Hurrian kingdom of Mitanni. Mitanni had been conquered a century earlier by the Hittites under Supaluliuma, season 3, episode 1, but the Hurrian people remained. Perhaps fleeing north into the Armenian highlands, the Hurrians coalesced into a land that was then called Nairi, the Assyrians conquered cities in Nairi 
and reach the upper sea of Nairi, which is presumed to be Lake Van. But again, we are uncertain. Neither Nairi or Urartu are mentioned by the Assyrians for a while. But around 1100 BC, there is mention of attack and conquest of some Nairi cities, and their kings have Hurrian names. Urartu, meanwhile, comes up in the Assyrian chronicles as something that appears to be centered further south, south of Lake Ermia, which is that big body of water in the northwest corner of Iran, and moving into the Zagros Mountains. According to R.D. Barnett in the Cambridge Ancient History, quote, It certainly seems to show that the original homeland of the people later generally called Arartians was well to the southeast of Lake Van, an area from which they seem to have moved to concentrate around the more easily defensible area of the lake itself. It is in the southwest of Lake Ermia that we find the most archaic portion of the Urartian kingdom or confederacy, the kingdom of Musasir. Unquote. This may be the original homeland of the people who were called the Urartians, although it doesn't mean the natives of the Armenian highlands were all pushed out by them. It is more likely that the Urartians moved in and imprinted their name. It's also possible that the Urartians were just one kingdom there, and the Assyrians used it as a term for everyone. Barnett notes that this is what the Romans did with one Hellenic group, the Graeci, and the name Greece has stuck around for 2,500 years or so. It is also worth noting that this is not universally accepted theory, and the Urartians may have always been around the Lake Van region. Regardless of their origin, by the 9th century BC, the Assyrians are fully referring to the kingdom to their north as Urartu, with no deviations to the spelling or pronunciation. Although sometimes they call them Chaldeans, or the people of Chaldee, which was the main god of Urartu. Not that the Urartians called themselves that. They seem to use the Nairi term that was mentioned earlier, or more commonly, the Bayanili. It is from this term that we believe the name of Lake Van, their kingdom's heartland, is derived. It's at this time, at the time of the Assyrian king Shalmaneser III, that we get our first named Urartian king, Arame. Before him, there was still likely a kingdom in Urartu, it was just a much more minor kingdom. But at some point, the Urartians began uniting the people around them, people that were former Hittite or Mitanni vassals. After the collapse of those empires, the kingdom of Urartu filled a power vacuum in the region. Of course, it was the Assyrians, as well as the Sea Peoples, who helped create that vacuum. Arame faced numerous invasions by the Assyrians, and it can't be said that Urartu fared particularly well. But it seems, from the Assyrian sources, that Shalmaneser was able to menace, or possibly even take, Arzashkun, the capital. This may have been the impetus for Arame to found the city of Tushba, or if he didn't found it, then to move his seat of power there. Located on Lake Van, in and around a hilltop fortress now known as the Citadel of Van, Tushba became a very important city for the region. Despite the initial Assyrian successes, the geography of the region made it difficult for this powerful neighbor to hold it effectively. In fact, as Paul E. Zemansky writes in his paper, Ecology and Empire, the Structure of the Urartian State, quote, The geography of Urartu hardly seems conducive to the formation or survival of a centralized state. Except for Urartu, no highly centralized state has ever been based in eastern Anatolia, unquote. 
There are pockets of arable land in between the mountain ranges, rather than anything conducive to massive agriculture that you'd think would be necessary for a large sedentary empire. This also meant they were less focused on growing things and more focused on herding. They were herders, but they weren't nomadic. There just wasn't room to move around. All this made it hard for Urartu to simply be assimilated into the Assyrian Empire. Decentralized and flexible, as well as geographically dispersed, the Assyrians were able to march armies through the kingdom several times, but actually taking it and controlling it turned out to be too much for them. In addition to the perils of ruling an unwilling people in a difficult-to-traverse region, the Assyrians also left instructions to their enemy on how to defeat them, or at least how to behave a little bit more like them. This is the time of the first Urartian inscriptions we find, and they use Assyrian cuneiform. As the Urartians were becoming a kingdom and less of a tribal confederation, they probably also took hints on construction, defense, and warfare from Assyria, not just writing. Meanwhile, upon the death of Shalmaneser in 824 BC, it appears that his conquests in Armenia were ephemeral. The Neo-Assyrian Empire held little or no sway in the land of Urartu, even at the end of the Great Conqueror's reign. Ishpuini ruled Urartu in the 820s and 810s, and there are several indications that Urartu became a powerful kingdom in its own right, rather than just the whipping boy of the Assyrian kings. His inscriptions were written in the Urartian language with a modified cuneiform that helps indicate a certain independence to it. Ishpuini's son was named Menua, and the two of them ruled together until the father's death in 810. The two built many fortresses and began expanding the kingdom north of Lake Van through conquest. Menua also pushed southeast and built a fortress very close to Lake Ermia. It seems likely that under the father-son duo, Urartu began to rule over Musashir, which was a major center of Chaldi worship and it is a possible location of the Urartian ancestral homeland. This is also a big indicator of the geographic extent of their power. Manuel ruled for about 25 years, but his reign is nearly ignored by surviving Assyrian records, which makes specific events harder to pinpoint. Manua did construct a major fortification meant to give some control of the Aras Valley. The Aras River, which today starts in Turkey, helps define the border between Iran and Armenia, as well as Azerbaijan, and eventually flows east into the Caspian Sea. Manua built even more fortresses in the area to help secure it. He also moved further west, building more fortresses and apparently controlling some of the northern Euphrates region. The Urartians, at least as early as Ishpuini, but perhaps from an even earlier time, used this fortress building as a deliberate military policy to defend a region and keep the Assyrians out. Barnett writes, quote, From a military point of view, Menua, while in general following out his father Ishpuini's policies, is now shown to have been the first monarch in Western Asia to develop the process of conquest, especially in the southeast, by means of systematically planned lines of fortresses and defensive posts, a strategy later revived by the Romans, unquote. These fortresses were also likely crucial in helping to define roles in Urartian society, as commanders and leaders were probably the military elite in a sort of ancient world version of a feudal kingdom. 
The geography and separation between the regions probably necessitated a certain amount of autonomy across the different areas of Urartu. Although, let's be clear, this is all speculation about the organization of society. Manua, like his predecessors, continued to build up the infrastructure of Urartu. Perhaps his most famous, certainly his longest lasting, didn't keep his name. Originally called the Menua Canal, today known as the Semiramis Canal after an Assyrian queen, it still provides water to the region around Lake Van today. Much like Menua's reign began as a co-regency with his father, so too did he bring his son along to rule with him. But his first co-ruler, Inushpua, probably his eldest son, did not last long. He's only mentioned once during Menua's reign. It's possible he was simply a young child at the time who did not survive to adulthood, rather than something more sinister, but we just don't know. After Anishpua's disappearance from the historical record, Manua's son Argishti became heir apparent. By the time Manua died in 785 BC, and his son Argishti really came to power, Urartu was a powerful and expansive kingdom. It may have already pushed into Colchis in the north, the western part of Georgia today. This would have, quote, completed the caravan route from the south via Manai through the passes between the two lakes, Ormia and Van, to Erzurum, and so to the Black Sea coast, probably ending at the natural harbor where the Milesian Greeks later, 757 BC, established the colony, which we know as the great port of Trapezus, unquote, according to Mac Chahin in his book The Kingdom of Armenia. Now, a couple things worth explaining here. First, Chahan goes on to say that there's no definitive evidence that Urartu ever had any ports on the Black Sea coast. But his point is that they controlled the routes from Manai, which was southeast of Lake Ormia, all the way up through the heartland of Greater Armenia, Eastern Anatolia, and the Upper Euphrates, up to the coast where Trapezus, or Trebizond, would soon be founded on the southeastern Black Sea coastline. Urartu was now in an extremely powerful position, a choke point of trade from the most advanced societies in the world at the time. Precious metals and ores from Armenia and Colchis further north were demanded in the south. Where goods from Syria, Mesopotamia, and even Egypt flowed up through Urartu to reach the Scythians, and by the middle of the 8th century, Ionian Greeks via ports like Trebizond. Argishti picked up where his father left off both consolidating gains and further expanding the empire. He records himself marching into Manai and causing much destruction. If Urartu had hegemony over the land in the southeast, he tightened that grip, and he likely pushed them into Parsua, further southeast into the Zagros Mountains. Despite the similarities in name and the relatively close location, this isn't necessarily the ancient name for Persia or Persis, which was further south in Elam at the time. This was, instead, on the central Zagros region. Although there is some speculation that these people eventually migrated south and became the Achaemenids, in which case it kind of was an ancient name for Persia, although it was in a different place. Either way, moving down the Zagros Mountains, Argishti was shoring up territory along important trade routes. Oh, and he was also kind of flanking his rival, which may have been why soon after, according to Chahin, Quote, the armies of Ararat penetrated into the homelands of Assyria no more than 25 miles from Nineveh. Argishti claims that in the fifth year of his reign, he annexed Asher's cities, and in the sixth year of his reign, 
he took into captivity the army of Asher, unquote. So Argishti defeated and captured a large Assyrian army. Sadly, we have few records from the best record keepers of the time, the Assyrians, probably because they're the ones whose butt was being kicked by Urartu. We just don't have significant details about campaigns in Assyria, but it's clear from the evidence there is that Urartu spent much of Argishti's reign fighting there. While there were some setbacks for Urartu, and there was certainly no decisive final conquest, Argishti delivered some of the most stinging defeats the Neo-Assyrian Empire suffered until the destruction of Nineveh in 612 BC. Argishti also made conquests in the other direction, to the north of Lake Van, claiming to take over 28,000 prisoners from Diahuei, the land to the northwest of Urartu on the Black Sea. He pushed southwest as well, turning the important northern Syrian city of Arpad, part of the small Neo-Hittite kingdom of Bit-Agusi, into a vassal state, or at least a very closely allied state. He extended Urartu's influence into Cilicia, the northeastern Mediterranean coastline, and may have taken a port city on the Orontes River. Today, that site is known as Almina, and at the time it helped connect the broader region. Populated with Greek traders, Syrians, Phoenicians, Urartians, and others, it was a major trading post in the ancient world. This further reinforced Urartu's position in trade with lands to the west, including Cyprus, Ionia, and perhaps even mainland Greece. Argishti's successes in taking on Assyria and its vassals across the region resulted in him bringing significant amounts of treasure back to Urartu. He reinforced the fortress at Tushba and made improvements in the city. He founded Erebuni in 782 BC, an impressive fortress city a bit further east and closer to Lake Sivan. These cities helped protect Urartu from invasion from the north, a real threat the Scythians and Cimmerians posed. Erebuni would become a major base of operations for successive Urartian kings and would remain inhabited. Today it sits on the outskirts of the current capital of Armenia, Yerevan, which almost certainly adopted its name. In 776 BC, traditionally considered the same year that the first Panhellenic Games took place in Olympia, he founded another major fortress. He dubbed this city Argishti Kanili, the city of Argishti to the north of Lake Van, into Transcaucasia, near Lake Sivan. It was more than a fortress, it was a real city. There were temples and there were fancy buildings assumed to be palaces or royal residences, and of course there were smaller, more humble homes. Argishti Kanili was a capital in the north that helped control the region. It was still in use during Urartu's decline, and new buildings were constructed, a sign that they retreated to and then regrouped into these Armenian highlands. The Urartian buildings here were eventually abandoned after the end of Urartu's independence, but the city of Armavir is a couple miles east. It became the capital of the Achaemenid satrapy, and later the independent kingdom of Armenia in the 4th century BC. Consolidating his predecessor's gains, and then further expanding the empire, Argishti led Urartu to great heights in territory and power. By the end of his reign, it stretched from Cilicia on the Mediterranean shores to Colchis on the Black Sea in the west, and beyond Lake Ormia into northern Iran, and up through the Lesser Caucasus and Lake Sivan in the east. From Chahin, quote, Argishti's reign witnessed the complete humiliation of Assyria. Her military prestige was utterly destroyed. She lost control of the trade routes from northern Iran, and in the west she forfeited the greater Syrian lands 
as well as the valuable territories north and west of Carchemish. These areas were garrisoned and administered by her rival, Urartu. Assyria had therefore lost the rich metal trade of Asia Minor. Ararat now stood as the premier power in Western Asia, unquote. It is not coincidental that Assyria was in a very weak position during his rule. Argishti took advantage of a weakened Assyria to grow Urartu's power, but it was also because of Urartu's great power, developed under his predecessors, that Argishti was able to push Assyria into an even more weakened state. When Argishti died in 753 BC, after ruling for over 30 years, the crown passed to his son, who became King Sardori II. Sardori continued the expansionist policy of his father and grandfather, leading invasions into Colchis in the 740s and conquering the kingdom around 744 BC. He carried their king off to Urartu. There is, however, no source discussing their Black Sea activity after this. Either it is simply missing, or Sardori wasn't able to hold much of a grip on Colchis. This was an area with a burgeoning trade relationship with the Ionian Greeks, and if it became part of the kingdom of Urartu, there probably would have been more evidence of this. Likely, Sarduri was raiding into what is today western Georgia rather than truly expanding that far north. Perhaps he was wisely working to not overextend himself. Regardless, Sarduri brought Urartu to its greatest geographical extent. But it would not be the north that Urartu would have to worry about. It would be their old enemies to the south. In the degradation of Assyria, Urartu sowed the seeds of its own downfall. Chahin writes, Quote, these economic disasters following upon Vanic victories caused general disruption and distress in the Assyrian polity, which led to revolution in Syria and revolt in various cities in Assyria itself. A usurper now mounted the Assyrian throne. His name was Pool, but he assumed a former monarch's name and called himself Tiglath-Pileser III, unquote. Tiglath-Pileser took the throne in 745 BC and by the time he died 18 years later, he had ushered in a new era of Assyrian ascendancy. He more than doubled the size of the Assyrian Empire, he greatly reformed the government, increasing the amount of direct imperial control, and he created a large standing army. He was a military innovator, a great general, who is known for conquering Babylon. Unfortunately for Urartu, he also marched into northern Syria and defeated Urartu and its vassal kingdoms and allies in a battle in 743. Sarduri fled up into the Armenian highlands. The Assyrians record conquests as far as Tushba, but the reality was probably that Urartu lost their Syrian holdings and kept much of the heart of their kingdom, at least for a time. Around 714 BC, the new king of Assyria, Sargon II, launched a successful attack. He defeated Rusa, the king of Urartu at the time, who agreed to some sort of tribute. Rusa then had to march north to deal with invasion by the nomadic Chimerians, who also defeated him. Urartu survived this turmoil in a diminished state, although Rusa did not. Many of Urartu's vassal states left their orbit, and Urartu's sphere of influence shrank significantly. In 705 BC, Sargon was killed in battle with the Chimerians, and about a decade later they attacked Phrygia, sacking the capital of Gordian, and killing the historical King Midas. After the death of Sargon, Urartu regained some of its strength and expanded southeast again, regaining some of the lands near Lake Ormia. 
but they were constantly under threat from Cimmerian and Scythian attacks, and remained a dependency of Assyria. In 612 BC, the Median and Neo-Babylonian empires destroyed the Assyrian capital of Nineveh, and the empire was gone within a few years of that event. Urartu survived this, although by the beginning of the 6th century BC it was almost certainly overrun, perhaps initially as a province of the Babylonians. By the time of the Achaemenids, the Babylonians still used the term Urartu, but the Persians began referring to the region as Armenia. On Darius the Great's famous Behistun inscription, a rock carving that includes a roll call of territories he ruled, both terms are used, as it is written in both Old Persian and Babylonian, as well as Elamite. Arartu disappears as a name before the end of the 5th century BC. It was really the hundred or so years between the middle of the 9th and 8th century BC that Arartu was a true power in the region. It not only rivaled Assyria's power, but for a time, under Menua and Argishti, it surpassed it. They controlled vital trade routes in the ancient world, and almost certainly were directly interacting with Greek colonies just beginning to form on the Black Sea coast, linking some of the most advanced cultures in the world at the time. According to Barnett, quote, Under Argishti I, Arartu reached its virtual zenith in extent, prestige, and power, unquote. Lake Van was the heart of the empire, but in the first half of the 8th century BC, their land stretched southeast from there, past Lake Ormia and Iran down to Manai. It went into Transcaucasia and Lake Sivan in the northeast. To the northwest, Arartu held some area past Lake Sildir and held some sway as far as the Black Sea and Colchis. And in the southwest, it controlled the northern Euphrates, counted Syro-Hittite states as vassals and may well have had direct access to the Mediterranean. Once more, Tachahin. Quote, For over 80 years from the death of Shalmaneser III in 743 BC, the ascendancy of Van over Assyria was secured. That period could be described as the golden age of Vanic power, when Assyria was continuously confined to the left bank of the southern Euphrates. Parsua and Manai to the east of Assyria and Habushkia and Carchemish in the northwest were occupied by Urartian troops, unquote. Argishti ruled for a little over two decades. Building upon the work of his father and his grandfather, he consolidated Urartu's power, expanded its territory and influence, and led what was, for a brief time, the mightiest kingdom in the Near East. Next episode, we'll move west and about three centuries ahead to the preeminent power in the Balkan Peninsula north of Greece, at least before the Macedonians. Thanks for listening. <laughs>